In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, we read last week or last over the last couple of weeks of an attitude toward money and possessions among the Christ followers in what I've just been calling the first Christian church of Jerusalem that was both radical and transformational. No one thought of themselves as the owners of their possessions, but they shared everything they had. And as a result of that attitude and as a result of the sacrificial generosity that went with it, there was not a needy person among them. And I just think uh, uh, every time I read that, I just pause because I think it's so powerful and so historically unique, the statement that there was not a needy person in that church. And it was a big church already, not a needy person. And one of the examples of That generosity that Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, cited was that those who owned houses or land would occasionally sell a property and bring the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed as any had need. And all the while, the apostles continued to preach with power the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, By the way, that activity continues today. In fact, just in the last several months, and and including just this past week, um, we received sizable checks from people in this church who have sold property and have tithed on that property or have given a significant portion of the proceeds of that sale uh, to our church. And uh, what a blessing that is. It it continues today. Um, We've taken a pause in our journey through Acts for the last couple of weeks to just reflect on this grace of generosity, this grace of giving, and and to examine attitudes towards money and toward possessions that either enable us or prevent us from living lives of similar generosity. We've made a few very pointed observations, and I want to just run through them very quickly by way of review. And uh, don't get mad at me if I leave you in the dust here if you're trying to write this down word for word. But whenever we talk about God and our money, God and our stuff, our tendency is to want to pull away. But when we do, uh, we find that instead of the greater freedom that we expect, we experience greater bondage. And the the, the counterintuitive reality is that when we follow God's directives and, and we adopt the values of his kingdom with regard to our money and our possessions, we find greater peace and freedom and purposefulness than we thought possible. Another observation we made is that God is the owner of everything. It's it's all his. Everything in heaven and on earth is his. So that what we think we own, that we have this illusion of owning, is really just on loan. It's just ours for a time. And what follows then is that because he is the owner and we're not, our role is to be managers of what he has entrusted to us. Um, if you have been in a church for very long, you've heard the expression financial stewardship. Well, a steward is a manager. That's what a steward is. And so um, our role is to be managers of what he has entrusted to us. And managers, we saw, ask a different question than owners ask. Managers ask, what would the owner have me do as his manager with the money and possessions he has entrusted to my management? We also thought about the reality that money is one of the first tests on the journey of Christian discipleship. And that test is the test of ownership. That is whether we're acting like the owner or as managers of the stuff 
that God has given to us on loan. It's a test of the true condition of our hearts. It's a test of our trustworthiness with real riches. And part of the life of repentance from sin is is putting aside the idols in our lives that vie for our allegiance and our obedience. And money is one of those. Uh, it's, It's the big one for Americans. And so that when it comes right down to it, this whole area of our discipleship, is really about those simple themes, not so simple perhaps, of love and trust. Do we really believe that God loves us? So that when he gives us directives regarding our stuff, that those directives come with love. We, We understand them as expressions of his love toward us. And then do we love him in return? Do we respond accordingly? Do we really believe that he's trustworthy so that we can trust him with our lives and trust him with our stuff as we release it to him? Are we willing to express our love to him by trusting him to fulfill his promises to us as we step into places of courageous obedience where we demonstrate complete dependence on him? Uh, Do we trust him with our money? Do we trust him with our financial future? Do we trust him with our children's financial future? So we've been talking about treasure. We've been talking about money and stuff, money and possessions. And so that's the end of the review. Let me pick up where we left off last week. Jesus said, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, don't misunderstand what we're talking about here. God ultimately doesn't want or need your money or your stuff. He He's seen your stuff. He's seen your bank account. He, he doesn't want it. You don't even want it. You want something better, right? What God wants is your heart. Because as the Proverbs say, your heart influences everything else in your life. And here's what God knows about you and me. Our our hearts will always pursue what they treasure. Our hearts will always pursue that which we value the most. If it's money, that's what our hearts will pursue. If it's leisure and recreation, that's what we'll be all about. If it's a person or a relationship, they will have your heart. So if you want to know where someone's heart is, follow the treasure trail. In fact, if you really want to know what someone loves or cherishes or values or treasures, the treasure trail is the ledger in their checkbook or their credit card statement. Look at what a person spends most of his or her time on. Uh, Look at what occupies most of their mental space. In fact, uh, young people or even older people, if you're thinking about marrying someone, Check out their treasure trail. Check out where their money is going, the choices that they are making. In the in the Pirates of the Caribbean series of films, which I love, the main character, Jack Sparrow, owned a unique compass. Some of you might remember this. It, it didn't point to true north, so some people thought it was broken. And yet that compass may have been the most valuable compass of all. Why? Because it pointed to the heart's true north. The heart's true north. Regardless of who was holding the compass, it always pointed to what that person wanted most in this world. It revealed what they treasured. 
So let me ask you today, which way lies your heart's true north? What are the truest and deepest desires of your heart? Because the truth each of us needs to understand, come to terms with, and allow to shape our attitude toward our money and our possessions is this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Well, here's what many of us do. We say, well, the Bible's pretty clear about what God wants for me and my finances. And I, and I kind of get that, and I'm in general agreement. I'm in general agreement. But what I need to do right now is to get my act together financially. It's not practical right now for me to give or to share. And I think God understands that, so I'm going to get organized. And then, and then... When it's practical, that's when I'll be ready to involve God in my finances. But you know what? Because you're just in general agreement, but not really willing to surrender your life to God, not ready to lower the flag that flies over your heart, not ready to obey God and trust Him with your future and your security. If you're not careful, if you don't wise up, you will find that you are a descendant of Cain. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Genesis 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So what did Adam and Eve do? When they left the Garden of Eden, they raised a little cane. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And now listen to this in verse 4, latter part of verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? So Cain's the first person in the Bible in need of a facelift, right? If if you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Now, there's a lot there. And I'm not gonna, I don't have time or the desire this morning to mine that for all that's there. But a question that many people ask after reading this passage is, why? Why did God look with favor on Abel and his offering, but not on Cain and his offering? It's a good question. It's a question worthy of reflection. Some people's first response is to think and therefore to say that it was 
because Abel brought an animal to sacrifice, but Cain did not. After all, everyone knows that God likes a good barbecue. Everyone knows that that the Jewish sacrificial system involved the sacrifice of animals. That must be the reason. But you see, that, that can't possibly be the reason. Because the Old Testament sacrificial system hadn't been established in yet, and it wouldn't be for at least a thousand years later. No prescriptions had been given about what items were or were not acceptable as sacrifices to God, at least that we're told. And even when the sacrificial system was ultimately established, the offering of plants and produce was entirely acceptable for many sacrifices. So what we need to understand in answer to the question is that it wasn't a matter of what Cain offered, but rather when and how he offered it. Notice verses 3 and 4 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. When did Cain bring his offering? In the course of time. And we might read when it was convenient, when it seemed practical, after he had taken care of his own priorities, when it was practical with no sense of priority or urgency. And compare that with Abel, who gave of the firstborn of his flock. The firstborn. Abel gave to God as a matter of first priority. Give, save, live. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. An offering. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. There is the sense that Cain brought some, but that Abel brought not only the first of his flocks, but he brought the first and the best of what he had. Abel's sacrifice foreshadowed foreshadowed two features of the sacrificial system that would come later under Moses. And the first is the consecration of the firstborn. Consecration of the firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Abel's sacrifice also foreshadowed the commandment that would come under the Mosaic law regarding first fruits. Exodus 23:19 The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And I realize that he's talking there about produce, not animals, but there's the foreshadowing. We can see some clues, can't we? The fact is that we could spend a lot of time and scratch the hair right off of our heads trying to understand why it was that God had regard for Abel's offering ultimately, but not Cain's. And thankfully, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews provides us with the essential insight 
He goes right to the heart of the matter. Don't miss this. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Notice the, the threefold repetition of by faith, by faith, by faith. The issue was faith. See, God isn't into practical. Somehow I always hear Jack Nicholson saying that word, practical. God isn't into practical when it comes to our worship, what we choose to give to him. Giving God the first and the best will rarely seem practical to any of us. Why not? Because practical doesn't require any faith, and God is looking for faith. Practical depends on human wisdom and judgment. God's looking for men and women who will live according to his wisdom and submit themselves to his judgment. Abel was commended as a righteous man because Abel, by faith, not according to practicality, offered to God the first and the best of what God had given him. He understood that what he owned was really on loan, that God was the owner. You imagine what might have happened if David had said, God, I'll take on Goliath when it's practical. Um, I mean, all, all I have is this puny little sling, and, well, look at look at the guy. He's this supersized killing machine. I'm going to wait until more sophisticated weaponry is invented, and then we'll see what we can do. What if Daniel has said, Lord, I acknowledge you and submit to you. I'll do that if I ever get back to Israel. But, but you know, I'm in Babylon right now, and I'm surrounded by pagans that are a little bit hostile to faith in the God of Israel. So, so it's a little impractical in terms of getting established in a career in governmental service if I have to make time or give up margin in order to hang out with a bunch of hungry lions. You know what I mean? What if Jesus had questioned his heavenly father about his timeline for the crucifixion? What if Jesus had said, this whole crucifixion thing, it's, it's brutal, it's painful, it's a terrible way to die. So how about if I just wait until someone invents lethal injection? So you can trust God with your obedience even when it seems impractical or inconvenient. You might say, I, I can't give now, I'm... I'm not making very much money. When I'm making more, then I'll start giving. And believe me, I, I get that. I understand that. I empathize with that. I, I resonate with that. But here's something I know for sure. And I know this for sure. If you won't give out of your little, you will never give out of your much. Some of you know that it was my wife Marcy and not me who provided the impetus for us as a couple to begin tithing when we were newlyweds. It was in the first year of our marriage that we began to give God 10% of all of our income. My wife checked out the treasure trail, saw some problems. And so I said, yes, dear, and yes, God. And here's some of what that decision has meant for us since then. We've had to pay much closer 
attention to our finances than we might have otherwise. We've had to make some lifestyle choices because we acknowledged God's ownership. We've had to make certain sacrifices with regard to luxuries that we might otherwise have liked to have or to enjoy. There were occasions when we had to say no to our kids about some things they wanted, some things that their friends had because we chose and keep on choosing to give 10% of our income to God. The choice to tithe has forced us to make some other decisions along the way in order to maintain obedience. And we have never been wealthy from a monetary perspective relative to the regional economy. We've experienced some really lean times with regard to our finances. We've been constantly reminded by that decision of whose we are. But here's the reality that God has provided in ways we never could have expected or even asked for. And today, we're not in debt. Not a little bit of debt. And we have peace most of the time. Most of the time. We still have questions about where money's going to come from for various things. We look in the mirror and we don't see that young couple that made that decision to tithe. So we think about things like retirement. We, we still have the same temptations to greed and materialism that we all do. And it's still a day-to-day faith decision to keep honoring God. But here are some promises from God's word that each of us needs to take to heart. Second Corinthians 2.9, it is written... No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And sometimes that applies to now, and sometimes it applies to eternity. There are ways that God surprises us with with, uh, mind-blowing provision in the here and now. But we don't live for the here and now only. We live for eternity Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Immeasurably more. More through us, more for us, more to us. So let's turn now in our Bibles to uh, Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament the prophet Malachi, or for you Italians, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. God is, in effect, taking the Israelites. This is the context. God is in the process of taking the Israelites to the woodshed for their sin. And after laying down a firm indictment, he says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Notice what God is saying here. If I were not who I am, and you were not my chosen people, the present circumstances in our relationship would result in your destruction. But because of my faithfulness to my covenant with you, because of my faithfulness to my covenant with you, I am being patient with you. 
Verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Return to me. Underline those three words in your Bible. God is saying there is relational distance between you and me, and something needs to change, and it's your move. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. So now we know why there's relational distance between God and them. They're thieves. They've been robbing God. Can you imagine if you were kind of uh, dipping into your neighbor's garage every now and then and just taking things that you thought ought to be yours? There'd be a little relational distance, wouldn't there? But you ask, how do we rob you? God says in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Well, what is the whole tithe? What's God saying? The word tithe means a tenth. Literally, that's literally what it means. It means one-tenth, 10%. For example, in Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The entire tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. What does is, what is holy to the Lord mean? It, it means that it's set apart for God. He's the owner. That's what he asks for. It belongs to him. It's an acknowledgement that he's the owner. What is the purpose of the tithe? The tithe was given in Old Testament times for at least three major purposes that I can see. One is that the tithe was given as an act of worship for, for us as an act of our worship and obedience. And it's always been, first and foremost, an issue of the heart. Over and over again, what we realize in Scripture is the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Secondly, the tithe was for the support of those who served in the temple, for the priests and for their families. And third, the tithe was given to maintain the supplies in the storehouse so that the temple could be maintained and the people could be fed in times of drought and famine. It was like a big-time benevolence fund that was ready to support the needs of the people. And the word tithe or tithes is often used in connection with another word, offerings. But I want you to understand this morning that tithes and offerings are two different things. If you go back there to our offering box, there's a sign that says tithes and offerings. And they're two different things. In the Bible, the tithe was the understood minimum expectation of God's people that one-tenth of their increase belonged to the Lord. And then when the tithe had been brought to the storehouse, offerings were subsequently given over and above the tithe. So let's continue in Malachi, verse 10. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Will you please read that aloud with me? Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Once again, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. 
Do you know that this is the only time in the entire Bible that God invites us to test him? Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not test the Lord your God. You might recall that when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, there was one of those moments where he said to Satan, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He was quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. So this idea of not putting the Lord to the test is a a big-time spiritual principle. It's a big-time biblical axiom. So Malachi 3, God's words in Malachi 3, are a big-time exception to that rule. And now here's God's promise as he goes on in verses 6 through 12. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. We sang it this morning, open up the floodgates. A mighty river. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So notice the the, the features of this blessing. Floodgates opened. So much blessing that you don't have room enough for all of it. Pests prevented from devouring your crops and Vines that don't lose their fruit. In an agrarian society, a picture of blessing, of of minimized economic frustration. And then third, he says, nations will call you blessed because yours will be a delightful land. So their witness and their international influence is heightened by their faithfulness in giving. The Hebrew word that's translated nations is goyim. It means people, literally, people who do not know God. So is it possible? Is it possible that people in our communities who don't know Jesus, think with me about this, is it possible that people in our communities who don't know Jesus might call our church blessed if we brought the whole tithe into the storehouse? Because as a result, our church would have such an overflow that we would be able to serve them, be a delight and a blessing to them. I think we should think about that. Well, why 10%? And the answer is, I don't have a clue. I don't know. Ask God. But here's what I do know. The average American, not, not the average Christian, but the average American gives about 3% to charities every year. That's what the average American gives to places like the United Way and the Boys and Girls Clubs and other charities. And what that ought to tell us is that giving 3% doesn't require any faith at all. But by comparison, 10%, that in so many ways requires faith. Want to hear a scary statistic? According to the latest stats I could find, the average American gives over 3% to charities every year, but the average American Christian gives 22 
to churches and charities every year, less than what the general population gives. And here's another indicator of maybe why the church is in such drastic decline in America. We're living in disobedience. We haven't passed the blessed test. But wait, there's a better statistic. Evangelical Christians give more. And who are the evangelicals? They're us. Evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God, that salvation is by grace alone through personal faith in Jesus Christ alone. Evangelical Christians are committed to reaching the entire world with the message of the gospel, or so we say. So evangelical Christians must give more than the general population of Americans who identify themselves as Christians, right? Right? Well, how much more do we give? How much do we evangelicals give each year? The answer is about 3.3%. Just three-tenths of 1% more than the general population. And it doesn't all come into the storehouse, which I believe is the local church. It's spread out over churches and charities, other good causes. Don't you find that a little disappointing? I do. See, God wants our first, our best, by faith. What we're giving him is our leftovers, apparently. God asks us to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, which, again, I take to be the local church. God wants our hearts where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. So which way lies our hearts true north? Remember the three priorities we talked about last week? They were in order, give, save, and live. Give, save, and live. Give to the Lord first. Faithful stewardship begins with giving to the Lord. Secondly, save a predetermined percentage because you're being attentive to your finances and to your future. Save a predetermined percentage second and then live on the rest. Turn one page to the left in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, where God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Answer, you placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now, again, there's a lot there. Let me simplify it for us. When we bring God our leftovers, we're showing contempt for him. That's what is being said. When we bring God our leftovers, we're showing contempt for him. Let me read on. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Try offering them to Jay Inslee. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring your leftovers, injured, crippled, or diseased animals, and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flocks and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I am not the God of second place, of secondhand sacrifices, of leftovers. I am the God of first place. My name is to be reverenced. Test me, test me, test me in this. Give me your first and your best and see if I won't provide for you in ways that will blow your mind. I will not be the God of second place. One final scripture. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 through 25. 2 Samuel 24. And again, here's, here's the context for what's going on here. God was judging Israel, and God had sent a plague against Israel because God chose to trust in his military might rather than in God's power. And in reality, David was doing pretty much what all of us do. He was leaning into his own wisdom about what seemed practical and expedient rather than leaning into the power and the promise of God. And David knew that he had to do something about this plague. Pick it up at verse 18 of Second Samuel 24. And Gad, that is the prophet Gad, came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. I don't know if it was Arana or Arauna or whatever. And he's not here to correct me, so I don't care. Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Many scholars believe that the threshing floor of Arana became later the site of the temple that David built. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. 
And then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And, and Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. May he accept your sacrifice. But the king, David, said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. Now listen to what he says. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, which was a chunk of money. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. I will not offer God, my God, offerings that are really no sacrifice at all. See, it's supposed to cost us something. It's supposed to cost us something. And if it doesn't cost you anything, how, how can you say it's offered in faith? Or is it just leftovers? In his well-known work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrestles with the question of whether the Old Testament principle of tithing is binding on us today and what the New Testament standard ought to be. Does, does the New Testament provide a rule for giving? And the answer technically is no, it does not. The answer generally is yes, it does. And, and what the New Testament calls us to is the sacrifice of everything. Everything. But here's where Lewis ends up on the subject. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Like so many of the freedoms granted by the New Testament, the expectation for Christian generosity is actually more challenging than the requirements of the law. God's not going to let Christians, Christ followers, get away with the simple 10% and you're off the hook. He asks us for so much more than that. He asks for our entire lives. God will not be the God of second place. What is your heart's true north? God is the owner of all things. What you think you own is really on loan. He's the owner. You are a manager, and managers ask a different question. What would the owner have me do with his treasure? One of the first things he wants you to do is to give a tithe of your income. He wants the first and the best of everything he entrusts you with. And here's what he wants for you. He wants for you the confidence that comes from knowing that you're doing what the owner would have you do with his treasure. The the peace and the freedom of having your financial house in order and the joy of knowing that your finances are being invested for eternal outcomes. 
He wants to wants you to give with a measure of faith. If 10% is easy for you, and it, and it is for some. If it's merely practical, what would a faith-challenging, faith-stretching gift look like for you? What would that look like? And what he offers us is mind-blowing, overwhelming blessing. Some of you may be wondering, are, are we just doing this series on the grace of generosity because the church needs money? I mean, are we just kind of being tweaked here, being manipulated a little bit? The answer is no. We took the time to think a little bit more about our relationship to money and possessions because of what we read in Acts 4, 32 to 37, that the first Christian church of Jerusalem had a radical relationship with these things that impacted their personal lives. It impacted their personal spiritual growth. It impacted the communal life of their church, and it impacted their witness to the watching world. And we need to learn not to think only one-dimensionally about these things. The church just needs money. But does the church need money? Of course we do. Of course we do. It costs money to conduct the mission and the ministry of our church. It costs money to remodel buildings. It costs money to keep the lights on. We live and we minister in a real world. But more fundamentally, money and stuff poses one of the first and most important tests on the journey of Christian discipleship, where your treasure is. Jesus said, there your heart will be also. So it follows that if you want to develop a heart for God and for his kingdom, that it makes sense that you will invest financially in his kingdom and your heart will follow. We want you to grow to real maturity in Christ. Our, our mission here at LifePoint is to help people find and follow Jesus, follow him, not just from a long distance, but to follow closely on his heels. In order to do that, each of us needs to deal with the other masters that are competing for our allegiance, our followership, our obedience. It will rarely seem practical to give with sacrificial generosity until your mind is trained by his word and your heart is shaped by the Holy Spirit. There there are a lot of Christians who have really trained minds, who really know the word of God, but their hearts aren't shaped by the Holy Spirit. And even then, there will always be points of real testing and struggle, but, but you'll always find, always, 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 that God is faithful in ways that you, you you can't know until you get there. And you'll never, ever regret trusting him and obeying him. Well, we've offered some tools to help you in this process. Two of those are uh, the nine-week Financial Peace University course that begins this afternoon and uh, the Foundations in Personal Finance class beginning today, right now, uh, over in the Youth Portable. Um, 
man, I wish I'd had a class like that when I was in high school. And, and I would encourage you parents of high schoolers to, to encourage your kids to, uh, to be a part of that. A lot of us struggle financially. Many of us struggle with dumb debt. You know, you know what dumb debt is? It's, uh, it's the debt you're in when you've bought things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. And the truth is you're never going to be free as long as you're tied down with debt. You're going to struggle to tithe or to give anything you'd like to as long as you're in debt. And the Bible is right when it says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. So we want to help you think biblically about your treasure, to get out of debt, to leverage your assets for eternity, to to achieve real financial peace. We've also made it possible, and I, I think probably most of you have discovered this by now, to give online. Uh, in fact, the majority of people here at LifePoint give online. Um, but you can you can still drop a check in the box. Some people feel like that's an act of worship. That's still fine. But you can also give with a credit card at the kiosk, or you can give online at uh, mylpcoli.com forward slash give. Um, and, and the cool thing about doing that is you just set it up in advance and it, it just happens. You figure out what one-tenth is or whatever uh, over and above that you're going to give and you just set it up. You can set that up with your bank too. And so a lot of ways to do that. Giving to God first is the first step to financial freedom. So each of us needs to be able to answer questions like, is God first in my life or am I acting like the owner? And what is my heart's true north? What is my heart's true north? And for some of you this morning, your response to what God is saying to you about your money and stuff will will prove to have been a breakthrough moment in your spiritual life. Some of you this morning, I just know that this is true, not because I know you, but because in a group this size, it will always be true. Some of you are resisting. Some of you still have your fingers in the finger trap and you're pulling away thinking that that's going to create freedom. Your love of money, your indebtedness, your insistence on doing things your way is rooted in your fear of what might happen to you if you really trusted God with your treasure and your resistance to God is keeping you from experiencing his freedom and the fullness of his plan and purpose for your life. And and what if, think about this, what if you were to live your whole life and never find that freedom, never find that sense of purpose, God's calling in your life? And some of you are encountering these truths for the very first time and it's all new to you. And, and here's what I would ask of you, please don't stay in that gray twilight of general agreement. Trust God and act. Put him first in your finances. Test him in this. Test him in this. Because he invites you to. And see what he will do. What you think you own really is on loan. Lord, what would you have me do with your treasure? Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much here so much to think about, so much to wrestle with. And Lord, in our, in our sin and in our resistance, we do wrestle with these things and we wrestle with you. But Lord, I'm asking that you would win that battle in, in our hearts and in our lives and that, Lord, we might surrender to you in these areas of, of idolatry, that we would learn 
management, that we would learn stewardship, that we would learn what it means to release to you that which you ask of us and to experience your blessing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.